I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald. You don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Here's what we know. It's 90 days until Election Day, and somehow the most disliked and distrusted Democratic nominee in a generation has opened up a remarkable lead in the polls. It's the kind of lead we have not seen in a presidential campaign in the United States since the mid-1990s. Which leads us to a question that seemed unimaginable even just a couple of weeks ago. Is Hillary Clinton headed for an old-fashioned, legitimate landslide? The kind where the whole electoral map turns one color, not two. And if Hillary Clinton is headed for that kind of landslide, if she even comes close to one, what would that mean for the future of both political parties in this country? Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich will be our guest a little later in the show. In my judgment, she is closer to losing than she is to a landslide. How did we arrive in a moment where that's even possible? We'll talk to our resident Hillary Clinton expert, Amy Chozik. But first, we need to convince you this actually is possible by looking at the numbers. For that, we will always turn to the Times' dedicated team of data whizzes, The Upshot. And today we're going to start with Nate Cohn. Hey. So, Nate, to start, a really basic question. What actually constitutes a landslide? What is it? Well, historically, I think you'd say something like a 15 or 20-point victory in the popular vote. But we haven't had something like that in a long time, not since 1984 has there even been a double-digit lead. You know, that's probably in part because the country is so much more polarized than it used to be. You know, nowadays, I think a 10-point victory or a 12-point victory would probably be about as impressive as a 20-point victory was 50 years ago. Which is why we're supposed to be living in a period of, like, endless deadlock, right? Like, taking it back to 2000, yeah. Bush v. Gore, hanging chads. I mean, in 2008, Barack Obama only won by seven points when the president's approval rating was in the 20s and the economy was truly collapsing. That's not what you would expect looking over the longer stretch of history. But maybe that is about as good as you could have done at that point. Which is another way of saying that Hillary Clinton's lead is anomalous, right? I guess there was a point in mid-October of 2008 when the polls were this bad for John McCain. He had that whole problem with the first debate where he said he wasn't going to be in it because he was going to go save the day, and then he got back in the debate, and then Obama did well in the debate, and the economy was collapsing. He had this moment right at that period where there were a bunch of polls showing him down by double digits. And other than that, though, we haven't had a a stretch of polls like this since 1996. I want to bring in my colleague, Amy Chozik, who's been covering Hillary Clinton for, I mean, ever. I want to talk about this notion, Amy, of self-inflicted wounds. I mean, that's the biggest cliche in this campaign. Mm -hmm. The idea that that Trump has done this to himself, has gotten into this position where, where something like a landslide is really possible. But in some ways, I wonder, wasn't this kind of done to him? And what I mean by that is, you know, let me use the example of our workplace, the New York Times. Like, if I decided I want to go on a whisper campaign within this building to lay the groundwork to destroy a colleague's reputation by arguing that they're completely incompetent, and then all of a sudden 
they actually start to completely crumble. Like, I've successfully created the circumstances in which that crumbling is magnified and amplified and, like, seems almost like it was destined to happen. I wonder, like, hasn't Hillary Clinton done something like that with Donald Trump and how she has portrayed him over the past couple of weeks? Absolutely. And she learned it from watching what happened to Mitt Romney in 2012. And a lot of those same people are working for her now, crafting the narrative against Donald Trump. When Mitt Romney said in a closed door fundraiser that 47 percent of the country is basically, you know, dependent on the government and and kind of helpless, it played into the narrative the Democrats had crafted of him of a cold corporate titan. And yet he never seemed to do it as spectacularly as Donald Trump is doing it now. Well, and some of these things, you wonder if they would even get the traction that they did in 2012 had it not been for this preconceived notion of Mitt Romney as not caring about the working guy. And it's the same thing with Donald Trump. Would we be putting so much attention on some of his comments if they hadn't already set up the idea that, oh, he's a unknowing pawn to Putin. He's not prepared to have his finger on the nuclear codes. And then when he says something that seems erratic, it plays into that narrative and gets completely amplified. Although arguably we would like the world would always make an enormous deal out of someone attacking a gold star family. I mean, it's just so completely out of the norm. But but you're right. Once the narrative and the assumptions and the understanding is in place in people's minds, it's just like waiting for inputs. That said, I think a traditional Republican, a Jeb Bush, for instance, with a super PAC that has $150 million, would have also been crafting a narrative about Hillary Clinton that, frankly, she would have fit into over the past couple weeks when she's been unable to answer questions, still been unable to fully answer questions about her email server. And she would have sort of played into that narrative. So there'd be these, you know, if elections are about choices, there would be these competing narratives. But as it stands, Donald Trump is not a traditional candidate. He hasn't kind of exploited her weaknesses as effectively as a traditional Republican probably would have. And so he's sort of fit into their narrative worse than she. She's sort of just sliding under the radar and letting him hang himself for the moment. Donald Trump is going to wake up one morning and realize that he doesn't need to step in the same pile of dog poop every day and he's going to find a path around it and he's going to make this campaign about something other than his own readiness and we saw that starting yesterday with his speech about the economy he's finding a way to change the conversation from i've screwed up yet again and that's going to happen in the next couple of months i mean it seemingly has to happen i mean We've been waiting for that to happen for a long time. So does one economic speech signal that that's happening? Of course, he said he's going to be more presidential, and the Clinton camp was waiting for that. They actually were waiting for the candidate that we saw yesterday, an economic populist who puts her on the defense about trade and some of her husband's Wall Street positions. You know, They were very worried about running against Donald Trump emerging in a general election as the economic populist, and I think yesterday you saw that candidate. That said, it comes along with this other candidate who's encouraging the Russians to hack into government emails and taking on a fight against Gold Star uh, parents. Nate, is that the most likely path for him to win by just religiously focusing on populist economic issues, winning back those white voters, and somehow finding a way to peel off independent and maybe some small percentage of minority voters? Is that I think it is. And part of the reason I think that is because we've had a few moments in the campaign where the polls have been pretty close, including right after the Republican convention. And in all those instances when the polls were close, that's why they were close. Donald Trump wasn't making big gains among college-educated white voters. He certainly wasn't making big gains among non-white voters. But he was posting historic numbers, better than Mitt Romney, among white voters without a degree. And when the polls show him breaking 60%, 
among less educated white voters, he's in the game. I'm not sure that he can keep that up. I'm not sure that would be enough for him to win, even if he did manage to bring back those numbers. I think that's a way for him to get back into a close race, but I'm not convinced that would be enough for him to actually go over the top in the end. But I think that it, he has demonstrated that that's his path of least resistance. But Nate, it's going to be hard for her to squander this lead she has, even if she does start to squander this lead she has, right? I mean, it's actually like work at this point for her to lose. Yeah. I mean, get ready to read over the next couple of weeks pieces from, you know, the likes of Nate Silver or Harry Enson at 538 or perhaps us that says something to the effect of, look, when you consider the history for how polling shifts over the final few months, it's hard to escape the conclusion that it's Hillary's race to lose and it would take something big to change it. In terms of the numbers themselves, what's really striking to me is that she's at 48 plus percent in a lot of these polls. And that's what it'll take to win this election because there's probably going to be a considerable third-party vote, maybe not 10% of the vote, but maybe four. And that means that Hillary has basically won, according to polls, the voters that she needs to win this election. She doesn't have to persuade too many more people, and she almost certainly will, given how many undecided voters there are. And the people that she's persuaded are people that have voted Democratic regularly in recent elections and don't like Donald Trump at all and say they're afraid of him. And so that's going to be very difficult for Donald Trump to break. So, Amy, take us inside this, I imagine, ebullient, like, really happy time for the Clintons who've known like just a ton of electoral and other kinds of pain in their lives. I mean, like, what are they saying to you about how this looks for them? Everyone is, of course, very cautious. I mean, there's this thinking inside Hillary's camp that it's never been easy for her. And they're sort of, on one hand, they're anticipating some other drama, that there's going to be something, whether it's uh, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks releasing some more emails. Of course, he released the Democratic National Committee's emails the week of the convention. Uh, They're anticipating something. I mean, Donald Trump is not going to go quietly without throwing more dirt their way. So with that caveat, a lot of Democrats are saying, We could not only win, but win so dramatically that it could stop the sort of Trump movement in its tracks. Um, That's something that David Pluff has talked to, Obama's campaign manager, has talked to me about, that the idea of getting out so many Latino, black, young people, the so-called Obama coalition, that it would sort of signal that Trump's movement didn't really have as much legs as we thought it had. And so that's sort of their pipe dream at the moment. And this is coming from I think directly President Obama. He's obviously very uh, competitive. He obviously has a personal animosity for Donald Trump, who started the birther movement. And he also just really wants to prove that his coalition of voters, young, diverse, the Obama coalition, doesn't just come out when his name is on the ballot. This will be a real test of whether those voters come out for his causes and his candidate. So I want to end with one more question for both of you, because this is where we may take our next episode of The Run-Up. Regardless of whether there's a landslide in November, no matter really what the outcome is, do you predict a long-term realignment of both of these parties after this campaign? I think that the identity of both parties is going to be contested for a long time because both parties are split along the same basic division, which is between populist voters and a sort of establishment business-friendly wing. The Democratic divide probably just got worse. You know, if Donald Trump alienates a bunch of well-educated white voters who now join the Democratic Party, the Bernie Sanders vote is not going away, and the Democrats have are going to be even more divided than maybe they were in the past if they want to keep those well-educated and more moderate voters. I think that the Republicans, on the other hand, might really struggle to break out of this. You know, if they lose the people that used to be voting for someone like Kasich or Jeb Bush, then it's going to be even harder for them to break out. They're in danger of sort of spiraling into a populist trap where they can't break out 
of the coalition that Donald Trump has bestowed to them. Well, I would just add to that that it depends on the candidate. You know, there's always an element of math, but there's also an element of sort of message and magic to this. And and President Obama, Bill Clinton, I mean, let's start with him. I mean, he emerged as a new Democrat. I mean, everyone thought that the Democratic Party was an absolute disarray after Jimmy Carter. It was a failed administration. We're never going to get back to the White House. Uh, The Reagan revolution was still strong. And, And here came Bill Clinton with a new type of Democratic Party. I think the right candidate with the right message can unite a party. We saw Barack Obama bring in a whole new coalition of voters that nobody thought the Democrats were going to get out, certainly not in those numbers. And in terms of the Republicans, I would point to 1964 and, of course, Barry Goldwater being defeated in a dramatic landslide. I mean, Democrats now talk to me about defeating Trump so badly that his kind of worldview and his movement is also killed. I mean, Barry Goldwater lost in a landslide and it gave rise to his movement. I mean, if anything, that campaign, you know, empowered conservatives who came back with Richard Nixon. And so it wasn't that a landslide killed the movement. If anything, it had instilled it in popular and empowered it to come back four years later and uh, even stronger. So I think it depends on the candidate and it depends on the message. I like that, Amy. The landslide can slay, but it can also birth. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. The path that Nate and Amy laid out is slender and treacherous for Trump, and the Republican Party is openly and unhappily acknowledging that fact. Party leaders are refusing to endorse Trump. There are full-blown and embarrassing defections. But one man who's still solidly on the side of Donald Trump is the former Republican House Speaker Newt Gingrich, a top advisor to Mr. Trump's campaign. We wanted to hear from somebody on the inside on what it's really like to be with Donald Trump these days and, and how the candidate plans to turn this thing around. As expected, Newt Gingrich was not shy. Mr. Speaker, great to have you here. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm delighted, and this is a, a fun thing you guys are starting. And all the way from Wisconsin, so we are especially grateful. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you from my mother-in-law's in uh, Whitehall, Wisconsin, population around 1,500. The heart of America. They certainly think so here. <laughs> As Georgians, we had a different heart. It was more of a fried chicken heart than a cheese curd heart. You know, sometimes we like to say that New York is the heart of places, but no one else thinks <laughs> no one else thinks that. No, but New Yorkers sure do. Mr. Speaker. Based on the developments over the past couple of weeks, we at the run-up have spent some time today talking about a, a possibility that seemed extremely remote even just a few weeks ago, and that is the possibility of a Clinton landslide. And that's an outcome, I, I'll, I'll pause right here and, and, and acknowledge that you would not like and not find appealing. But tell me why you think that's not going to happen. Oh, I'd look, I, I think the base vote for Trump is actually much higher than people think it is. Uh, and that he's virtually guaranteed to be in the 42, 43% range. But, and part of it is Republicans coming home. Part of, part of it is that they, the degree to which they loathe Hillary. They don't just dislike Hillary. They loathe Hillary. You know, I think that uh, the, the last two weeks have been peculiarly bad for Trump, and they've been very good for her. She had a great convention. She would have gotten probably a four-point bounce notionally uh, under any circumstance, and Trump getting into the fight uh, with the with with Mr. Khan probably gave her an extra three or four points, but how much any of that matters? I remember watching Dukakis, for example, who had a very nice convention on his way to collapse, uh, and I think, in my judgment, she is closer to losing than she is to a landslide by a big margin. And 
So I, I think we're a long way from this being decided, and I think despite the best efforts of the elite media, uh, Trump will gradually come back. Hey there, do you mean us? Uh, well, certainly the New York Times would consider itself elite <laughs> media. Uh, but I, I think there was a piling-on effect of, that verges on absurdity. Uh, and and uh, I think gradually that reshapes itself. Michael Barone once said that in almost all the Western democracies, conservative candidates do better in the last six weeks because uh, uh, eventually people start paying attention and they shake off the impact of the liberal media. And in all of the Western democracies, the media is liberal, every so, single one of them. I want to I want to zero in on a phrase you used, which was which was was creative one, peculiarly bad. What was so peculiarly bad about the past couple of days or weeks for Donald Trump? And, and I, would we both acknowledge he's in something of a rut? No, I think he's now out of that rut. I think uh, the speech he gave um, in Green Bay, the speech he gave in uh, New Hampshire, and the speech he gave in Detroit all were solid speeches, well-delivered, uh, avoiding any kind of major mistake. He, he got into a period there where uh, and he was really doing very well, if you remember, three weeks ago, if we'd been doing this interview, we'd have been talking about how far ahead Donald Trump was, what a big bump he got out of the convention, and how good he looked. Uh, he then got into a period where you had both very positive stuff for Hillary, a convention that was unrelentingly hostile to Trump, uh, and then this one particular fight uh, with Mr. Khan, which was which was played to maximum effect by the media. And I think at that point, you know, Trump looked very vulnerable, and and, uh, uh, and he also made some you know some mistakes in terms of handling Ryan and McCain and Ayotte. Were you dis- uh, were you disappointed, Mr. Speaker, in how he handled his interactions with the Khan family? Um, I think I think I was I was particularly disappointed that he didn't take a deep step back um, and point out that uh, you know it's Mr. Khan who picked the fight. I mean, the fact is, Mr. Khan decided to be a politician. He went to a national convention. If you if you look at what he actually said, it was very vicious and very nasty. And that's the business. I mean, I, my per, I was only disappointed that he even noticed it. I mean, my my view is that that Trump has only two people to oppose: Barack Obama, whose record he has to be able to convince people should not be extended for four years, and Hillary Clinton. And, and anybody else he spends any time on, other than those two people. Is a mistake. So you're, you're asking for you're asking for for equality in the coverage and then the emphasis, because you're an advisor to Donald Trump. I I want to ask you a question that I would ask you of Hillary Clinton if you were an advisor to her. Okay, fair enough. What do you say to people? And and, and maybe they've asked you this question, and maybe they haven't asked this question. But according to the polls, they've asked the question in their heads, which is, does he have the mental fitness, the kind of psychological suitability? to the office of the presidency? Um, yeah, my, and my answer would be sure. Sure? Sure. I mean, he, he is at least as reliable as Andrew Jackson, who was one of the most uh, decisive presidents in American history. Nobody would have predicted Abraham Lincoln's capabilities before he became president, and most people didn't believe him while he was president. Can you be uh, more forceful? Some, can you be uh, more forceful than sure? Um, I think I think that Trump has a willingness to break up a system which is decaying. I think the kind of personality that is prepared to be outside the total establishment and have the self-confidence to take on the establishment in both parties is a personality which will, by definition, 
not be normal. It will not be a good corporate managerial go-along-and-get-along kind of guy. And that's what you guys mean by temperament. I want to ask you about your interactions with him these days. How often do you give him a call? Do you find yourself speaking with him, offering any kind of constructive criticism? How does that work? Oh, I talk to him uh, pretty much when I want to. I don't talk to him very often because I don't think it's necessary. I do a, a great deal by email with various staff people and trying to get things to work. I'm, I mean, I, I see my, my primary function being uh, as a good mechanic trying to help point out specific things and trying to help shape specific messages or look at specific opportunities or solve specific problems. I mean, it's, it's not a pat you on the back and let's sit around, you know, and have a drink. It's, it's a very direct fix this or that, here's a great opportunity kind of approach. Now, I wish I could wing this better with greater authority about the insides of a car, but you mentioned yourself as a mechanic. I mean, are there are there particular parts of the car that you've been focused on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think thinking through the strategic messaging, he, clearly any Republican candidate has to dramatically broaden the base, uh, and that's true for Trump also. And, I, and so thinking through what can we do in the next 90 days uh, to reach uh, millions of Americans who don't think of themselves as Republican, and given the capacity of social media to, to carry messages in a very direct way, what are the kind of things that might have a, a very substantial and, and even dramatic impact? Are you worried, Mr. Speaker, about the number of Republicans who are expressing their alarm over Donald Trump by, by essentially bailing out, trying to distance themselves from his campaign in these Senate and these House races coming up? Well, I'm, I'm concerned and think that there have to be signals sent to reassure him. In a world where there are only two choices, he is so dramatically better for America than Hillary Clinton <clears throat> that I, I have I have zero concerns. I mean, do I want him to be more effective? Sure. Do I want him to be more focused at times? Sure. Do I think he can get to be a better candidate and ultimately a better president? Sure. But this is a very gifted amateur who has had 15 months or so, 16 months, to learn a trade which he has been working on for at least 40 years. Uh, and I would say that his learning curve is dramatically better than hers. What were the signs, or what are the signs, that he is learning? I mean, it seems in the past couple of days he's done some pretty uncharacteristic things. He's apologized for a tweet that suggested he'd seen a photo of it when the United States money showing up in Iran as, a, as some sort of, in his words, ransom payment. Um, he has backpedaled on a reluctance to endorse Paul Ryan and John McCain is... is is this a kind of a new era, if we can call it, of humility in him? Is is that what you mean? Well, I, I mean, first of all, um, he has dramatically increased his willingness to give uh, set-piece speeches, which I think presidential candidates have to do. So teleprompters and formality. The, the teleprompter, having thought it through, having vetted it, uh, making sure it's what you actually want to say. I think it was exactly right the other night for him to endorse Ryan and, and McCain and Ayotte, and you're right. You know, Reagan went through a very rough patch in August of 1980, and they actually basically closed the campaign down for a couple of days and had a retreat in Virginia and got all the seniors people in one room and had to rethink what they were doing because they just they were stumbling around. These things happen. So final couple of questions here. Um, what does Donald Trump need to do in the next two, three weeks to take what may have been a change in direction to He has to consistently communicate a series of ideas in a positive way that allows his supporters uh, to feel confident that they're back on track. Uh, he has to continue carrying the fight to Hillary. 
he has to offer a very strong contrast between tax cut Trump and tax increase Clinton, which historically works pretty well for the guys in the tax cut half of that. And I think that at some point they need to be prepared to campaign in places like Southside Chicago and offer African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-Americans a radically better future. You brilliantly teed up my next question, which is, like, can he win without a black vote, a Latino vote, a woman, an independent voter vote? And he's he's really struggling there. Well, I think I think that he will he will get better. I think this will change pretty rapidly. I mean, I think the first time a Republican has the courage to go to Southside Chicago and outline an anti-crime plan in an area that has lost 3,400 people killed since Barack Obama became president. But Paul Ryan and other Republican leaders have been talking about that and and doing that for years now. Because one of the questions is why has it taken until mid-August? of a general election for Donald Trump to begin to really aggressively go after minority voters in this campaign. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable thing that he hasn't yet done it. Well, I think, I think that the entire first phase of this was winning a nomination against 16 candidates by a gifted amateur who had never run before. They were pretty mesmerized, I think, through Cleveland, with consolidating, and this, because this, this was an outsider victory. I mean, there are very few outsider victories on this scale in American history. Oh, absolutely. It's staggering. And, and that's, that's the only reason I urge all of you who are confident that this is over to just remember that nobody in the elites believed as late, I think, as probably February that this guy was going to be the nominee. So you think he has time? I think in the age of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, the world can change in 72 to 96 hours. Go track how rapidly the beheading of two journalists shifted 40 points in American opinion. It's a really good test case. And I think the difference between all the rest of us and Donald Trump is if Donald Trump goes to the south side of Chicago and Donald Trump pledges that he has got a series of steps and he outlines them in order to save the lives of Chicagoans, even if their native-born Democratic nominee and their resident president both have ignored the killings. I think it might it, it it poses a totally different seismic event than normal people doing it. And I think I think Trump is that much bigger than life, and that Trump has a capacity to to really turn things very fast. When we talk about the need for Trump to find his way into communities of color and court Black and Latino voters. It's hard not to acknowledge that he went to Detroit to give a big economic speech. He didn't make a side trip to the black parts of the city where he could have introduced himself, like you suggested he do in Chicago. Like, why isn't he taking the easy base hits here? If I were coming off the last two weeks, and and I've thought about this because I've I've consciously not pushed them very hard on, on on what I think they have to do ultimately. I think you first have to stabilize and do a series of things reasonably well. I think the first time he goes into a place like Chicago or Detroit or Baltimore... He will be booed. He, he, not just he'll be booed. He has to thoroughly understand how he's going to handle the booing, and he has to understand the hostility of the questions that are inevitable. And you can't put him in a place like that unless you've gamed it out, thought it through, and actually practiced. Because <laughs> it's too big a gamble. But on the other hand, of all the Republicans I've known he may be the least intimidatable. And I think, uh, you know, if, if 
if I were in Southside Chicago trying to explain how to save lives and I got booed, I would ask him, what, what have you done to save 3,500 dead people who shouldn't have been killed? Because the black leadership, of course, will go crazy at the idea that Republicans actually care because it threatens their entire power base. Well, I don't doubt that, that that provocation will be an instinct of his, but isn't the point to go into such a community and, f- and sort of find conciliation, find <laughs> common ground? Or are you yeah, suggesting? No, yes, but you, but you don't find common ground with somebody who's booing you. You find common ground with everybody else in the audience. So you have to you have to start with that. Last question, even as strange and long and fascinating career as you've had, do you still find yourself taken aback by this race? Oh, I'm, listen, I am totally fascinated. I, I I really began to get fascinated the night of the Fox debate, the very first debate, when Cliss and I were at home watching, and everybody in the elites explained that Trump had lost. And about one in the morning, it began to be obvious on, on Google and Twitter and Facebook that 70% of the viewers thought Trump had won. And I thought, this is an anomaly so large that the historian in me just got all excited. And I've watched it ever since. I mean, he called me one time and said, what advice did I have from him about a particular? And I said, I don't have any advice for you. I said, you, you operate off of an internal model so radically different than mine that I would just screw you up. <laughs> I said, my, my advice is be who you are, do the best you can, and learn very fast. You know, if, if you operate off of kind of a unique template, you can't, you, you can listen to lots of other, I always tell people, he listens really well. He doesn't obey, but he listens really well. <laughs> and that's the way it should be. I mean, I, you want a president who in the end assimilates lots of stuff, brings all of his or her life's experiences to bear, and then renders their best judgment and understands that it's always inadequate. The world's always bigger than you are. That's why Kennedy kept that little sign on his desk and said, Oh, Lord, your ocean is so big and my boat is so small. Well, okay. Mr. Speaker, I want to thank you. Yeah. I want to yeah. wish you please, the best oh, of luck. Please, please, please don't take any of the references that are critical of Trump out of, out of context, okay? We won't. Okay. I mean, I, that would really be violative of the whole spirit of this, this conversation. Agreed and understood, and okay. I'm grateful for your time. And we will, and I, I hope— I think so. I've given you more than enough to start your blog. <laughs> or our podcast. Your podcast, right. Take care. Bye. Well, this blog is almost over. We're going to end as we plan to end every episode with a single number. We'll ask the upshot to choose just one number that tells us something surprising and somehow illuminating about the state of the campaign. So we're back with Nate Cohn. Nate, what's our number? Zero. Whoa. Zero is the number of times that the candidate trailing in the polls a few weeks after the convention has gone on to win the popular vote. Like, never. Never. So let's do a little explaining here as if it really requires it. The number of times that someone in Donald Trump's position has somehow managed through political jujitsu or biblical style miracles to actually win is zero. It's never happened. Doesn't mean it can't. There have been some impressive late comebacks. Like who? But not ones that got you over the top. So Hubert Humphrey drilled a lot coming out of his convention and he almost won it in the end. Same thing um, with Ford in 1976, but they didn't go over the top in the end. And George W. Bush did ultimately win the presidency in 2000, even though he didn't win the popular vote, though that was obviously a close race all the way through. All right, well, 
That is a show-stopping number. Uh, Thank you for that, Nate. No problem. Okay, that really is it for the first episode of The Run-Up. We'll be back on Friday, and then every Tuesday and Friday after that, until Election Day on November 8th. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our War Room Director. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Our chief strategist is Carolyn Ryan. Our rapid response team is Diantha Parker, Pedro Rosado, and Teresa Cotzerillas. Every campaign has a theme song. Ours is by Jim Brumberg and Ben Lansford of Wonderly.